Hello and welcome to Naturally Curious. This is a show where I pick the brain of different cool people every episode. I'm Clayton Law, and today I'm joined by history professor Carolyn Kay. How are you doing, Carolyn? I'm great. I think a lot of people like history. I like history, but I don't like reading about history because it can be very dry sometimes. Were you like that when you were a child? I was really influenced as a child by novels and by plays, by films. I didn't read a lot of history, but my father was a, a sailor in World War II in the British Navy, and he used to tell me stories, and he was very interested in history. So I did become interested in history partly because of him, and then when I went to university, I had professors teach me history courses. I was in several history courses, and it was so exciting. So I guess you could say in a way that I became interested in history because of the stories. Yes, that's true. But I would say that I do think that there are some fantastically interesting, amazing history books out there that just capture you right from the first sentence, and you're shocked by what you find out. So you can also really get drawn to history through books. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you actually liked English yes. literature yes. in the beginning. I did. I wanted to be um, uh, do a an undergraduate degree in English Lit and English literature. I was crazy about 19th century novels, for example. And then I went to the University of Toronto. That's where I did my undergraduate. And in the first year, I took five classes, one philosophy course, two English courses, and two history classes. The philosophy course was fantastic. The English courses were terrible. <laughs> and the two history classes were beyond magnificent. I mean, the professors were so good, and the subjects were so interesting. And I said, that's it. I'm changing my major. So you just changed your major yes. from English to history after first semester? Yes, and one of the problems was, I mean, one of the classes that I took at University of Toronto that I didn't like in English literature was on Shakespeare, and I loved Shakespeare, but the prof was really boring, and I felt just no desire to do the, the course. So it really matters, I think, uh, what kind of instruction you get in a university as to whether or not you make a subject your major. You may be in love with that subject, but you can definitely change. Yeah. And, yeah, and I just wanted to add, I mean, my interest in English literature was in part my interest in human nature. You know, I read novels because I wanted to find out what motivated people, how people dealt with trauma, what, you know, they did when they were in love, and so on. And when I took history courses... The, some of those same issues are also addressed in the stories of history. So it wasn't hard for me to switch from English lit to uh, history. Before you started your undergrad, you really wanted to be less a writer? Would, would, would that be right? Like, let's say in high school. I, you know, I wasn't sure. What, I mean, in high school, to be honest with you, I did a lot of theater, and I thought I was going to go on and do a, th a degree in theater. But... Um, my father thought this was a terrible idea and wasn't very practical. And in the end, I thought, well, okay, I'll study the humanities. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I really loved reading. And I really loved learning about ideas, in particularly in the humanities. I was so excited at university. I loved it. So I didn't th really think about what I wanted to do until my second year when I took a course in German history and 
I just adored the professor. He was an exceptional um, teacher and scholar. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a professor. Oh, you then you realized you wanted to be a yes, professor. Yes, in my second year. And he'd gone to Oxford. And I said, I want to go to Oxford. And that's what I did. So I did my master's degree at Oxford. And then later I did my PhD at Yale. He was a huge influence on me. Yeah, for sure. I don't think a lot of people know that they want to be a professor until, let's say, they're doing the, their, their post-grad or graduate school. You said, you're, you, said you, you, you took that class when you were second year undergrad. Yeah. Then you realized you wanted to be a professor, so yes. you start planning to become a professor. Yeah. Hmm, that's I, very, that's I, very interesting. It's very, like, daring. Almost. Well, thanks. Well, I mean I, I mean, I was lucky because I really, really loved going to this class and the professor was young and new instructor he was very kind he would meet with me and talk with me um, he gave me a lot of support and encouragement he wrote me letters it made a huge difference to me that, that that this professor was so wonderful and I was at Scarborough College University of Toronto and at that time Scarborough College was quite small it's like Trent and you had a much closer relationship to the um, to the professors, so that made a difference. The other thing, though, I should say is that now it's so hard for some people to think about graduate school because the number of jobs in academia have um, diminished. So, you know, I know that students sometimes are worried about thinking about graduate school. So I have to admit, I was in a, a in a different time when you took your German history class. Is when you realize, yeah. I want to be a history professor, yeah. and and I love German history. Yes, and one of the reasons why that happened was, for example, first of all, we were doing modern German history, so he was talking about Nazism, amongst other topics, and I could not understand why Germans had selected Hitler as their leader and why they supported this man and that movement, which you know destroyed so many lives and you know led to war. So I was really interested in that aspect of German history. Uh, but also this professor said to us at the time, so this was in the 1970s, he said to us, okay, if you really want to understand Germany and German history, you have to go and see German film. Because in the 70s, German film was incredibly innovative and it often looked back at the Nazi past. So I used to take the bus from Scarborough and go downtown to downtown Toronto and go to these films by filmmakers like Fassbinder and Herzog and Schlondorf and so on um, and Vendors and they were incredible films that also asked a lot about human nature, uh, about the, as I said, about the historical past for Germany. Um, but they were they were just so incredibly exciting. And I thought, I, I love German culture. I love German history. I'm going to learn more about Germany and, 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 and become a professor. And I want to go to Germany and live there. I was really drawn to it, to, this, you know, the, to Germany and German history. Yeah. What other part of, parts of history did you also find very fascinating? Well, I have to admit that when I did history classes, most of the history classes that were on offer were European history classes. I mean, today it's very different. You get fantastic courses on the history of Vietnam or the history of China, you know, or the history of India or the history of the African states. But back then in the 70s, most of the courses were either British history, Canadian history, or European history. 
And what I fell in love with, and North American history, of course, what I fell in love with was German and Russian history. These were the two kinds of history that really um, excited me, and it was because of the drama of those, of the history of both of those nations. I actually, at one point, uh, thought it would be great to do Russian history, uh, as you know, bef this was before I took the course in German history, um, and everything changed for me, but... Um, I thought, well, I don't know Russian. This is a big problem. Russian's so hard to learn. German was more accessible as a language. So that was another factor. But both Germany and Russia went through incredible transformations in the 19th and 20th century. And in both cases, the peoples in those nations suffered a lot through war, through destruction of the nation, you know, through forced labor, through, uh, you know, oppressive leaderships. And... Uh, they both, you know, industrialized really fast. So I, I think they, they, they both have incredible histories. But you could do histories of other areas of the world for sure and find it just incredibly fascinating. Uh, well, commit, correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that you were in Germany when the, when the Berlin Wall fell. I wish I wish I could say that was the case. I wasn't there the actual year the the wall fell because I was at Yale then and I didn't have enough money to get over to Germany, although my roommate was able to go, which made me really mad because he had tons of money. But I went the year after that, so I went in 1990, and uh, it was really uh, incredible to see all the changes. Yeah, it was just. St I couldn't believe it. I had been in Germany to do my master's degree. I had to do research in, in Berlin in 1982, and that's when the wall was up. And I lived in West Berlin, but I went into research in an archive in East Berlin. So I saw both East Germany and West Germany, and the, the conditions in those two states were totally different. And I never thought the wall would come down. I thought it would always remain. I was sad about that. So it was a tremendous shock when the wall came down. And Berlin now is totally different. It's just unrecognizable how much has changed. Can you explain it to me, how people in East Berlin compare to the West Berlin? Like, how big of the difference, how how some of the most, like, bizarre thing in that they do in East Berlin, or even West Berlin, like... Well, I mean, one thing, I mean, for example, when I went into East Berlin, um, the, the East German government made you take, m buy money, at the border. So you had West German money, which was worth more than East German money, and you had to buy the East German currency, and you had to spend it all when you were there. You could only go in for like a day, and then you had to come out. You could go back in another time. And I would go to the grocery store. In West Berlin, if you went to buy food at a grocery store, there would be 30 or 40 different kinds of cheese. You went into an East German store, there was two. They hardly had any fruits or vegetables. Everything was really austere and basic. Uh, they also had like uh, these, these weird um, apartment buildings in East Germany that were designed uh, along uh, Russian lines, Stalinist lines. They called them Stalinist apartments. And they just looked like big concrete blocks. Whereas in West Berlin, the buildings were much more innovative and there was all sorts of new architecture. It was, it was really different. The other thing is that in... in uh, East Berlin, for example, I went to the cafeteria of the place where I was uh, doing my research, and the cafeteria ladies, they wanted to talk to me. And they said, um, what are you doing? 
and I said, I'm studying German history. And they said, are you allowed to do that? And I said, yes, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, you know, you can't do that in East Germany unless you're allowed to go on to do graduate work. You have to be accepted to do that. The state has to allow that. And I said, well, no, we're allowed to do that in, in, in Canada and in Britain. You know, you just apply to go to university. They were shocked by that. That was funny. And then also when they asked me, sometimes in, you know, in whispers, they would ask me about, you know, what's Canada really like? What can you do there? You know, are you allowed to say anything you want and so on? And again, they found this like totally shocking. That was interesting. And the another thing that happened to me, which was really bizarre, was the a woman that worked in the archive invited me to come to her house for dinner. And her husband was a professor at Humboldt University, which was East Berlin's big university. And during the dinner, he got really drunk. And uh, he knew I was at Oxford, and I think he wanted to impress me. So he got really, really drunk. And then he said to me, I want to tell you something. I have to tell you this. I helped to build the Berlin Wall with my own hands. I put the bricks on the wall. And now you know why I did it? Because I had to keep in our system because we were under attack from capitalism. And the more drunk, the drunker he got, the more he was yelling. And you realized by the end of the evening, he felt a lot of guilt about it. He didn't believe that. You know, it was so awful. Um, and um, the nice side of that story was I was working on an artist who had been active in the 1920s and uh, during the Nazi period, but he had gone to East Berlin and died there, so all his archival material was in East Berlin. And the wife of this man who got drunk, she felt so bad about what happened that the next day she gave me an original piece of art by this artist, which I managed to get out of East Berlin without the guards finding out, and I still have it today. So, But it, were they two different systems? Totally. They were very, very different. People thought differently, I, th I think. Um, East Germans, to this very day, in my view, are much more, they're often, I mean, I guess this is a stereotype, but they're often very direct, they're honest, they're quite kind, uh, they're not pretentious, they're pretty thrilled to be in the new Germany, you know, most of them are... Uh, they're really happy, and it's a little bit like if you have a cousin, you know, that comes from, if you live in a city and there's a cousin that comes from outside and very, comes in. Very and, hopeful and yeah, optimistic. And you're like cynical, and you're like, West, West Germans were often like, oh, brother, you know, here comes <laughs> these Germans. Like if you went to a party, you know, and there were East Germans and West Germans there, all the West Germans were smoking and looking over at the East Germans going, oh, this is so embarrassing. You know, there really were these incredible differences in the way that people thought and acted. And, uh, and, and it's still an issue today. I have a, a friend, a couple, a couple that's, uh, they are friends of mine that live in Berlin. She's West German. He's East German. And we were at a restaurant uh, this summer where they had a huge argument in front of me about what both of them as young people believed or did not believe about the state. And she assumed that he accepted everything that he was told. And he said, no, we didn't. We knew it was a lie. And we argued, we argued back against it. And she said, well, I don't think that's true. So, you know, so she has this West German perspective that most East Germans were brainwashed. And he's arguing that's not the case. So, you know, yeah, that's a long way of saying there definitely were differences. They're together now. But, uh, you know, there's still issues that have to be worked out.
what would have happened if the guards were to found that you uh, took the painting? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, I was pretty scared when I went through that you could be arrested and placed in jail. They w- What happened in the lineups were they normally targeted Germans, not foreigners, but you would, you'd have to line up to, to go through passport control, and they regularly took people out of the line. And then when you came up to the front and gave your passport, the guard had a section next to him that was behind um, tinted glass. You couldn't see what was who was there or what was going on. He would hand the passport there, and he'd really look at you, and there was a long period that you had to wait. It was really intimidating. There was somebody once in the line with an American woman who tried to take in time magazine and she also had something uh, a magazine or a book that had um uh, a swastika on it you're not allowed to take anything in that has any nazi um insignias on it you know the idea being that the nazism is a f- east germans thought nazism was a, a, a was a fas- uh, was a capitalist invention so you shouldn't have these things around so she got in trouble for that i remember that yeah it was scary it was not it's worse than if you go into the U.S. today and you're worried about, you know, what the what the customs officials are going to say to you. Uh, it was much worse because they literally took people out of the line and took them away into a room, and then they just, you know, you don't know what happened. I mean, I, in some cases, if you were a German citizen, they they took you to the head headquarters of the, of the Stasi and interrogated you, and you were put in prison. Let's say I'm just a common criminal back in Nazi Germany. So I'm saying, like, I'm a murderer. I'm not a political activist or I'm not a Jew. Uh, what kind of rights I would have back in Nazi Germany if I'm just a common criminal? If you were a common criminal, it was most often the case that you were picked up by the regime because the Nazis included as part of their targets a group they called asocials. These were people that they believed would be a problem in the new system that wouldn't cooperate or wouldn't be effective workers. And they would just pick these people up and put them in camps or prisons. And they said they would re- rehabilitate them, but in many cases they they either used these criminals in the camps as guards. Sometimes they did do that, as capos as they were called. Um, but they were still prisoners, but they used them to control the other prisoners or they ended up killing them. And Part of the reason that they did this was because they didn't think that these criminals would would be good workers, but also because they were trying to prove to the German people that they were creating a world of law and order. I mean, it's such a ridiculous thing to say now, but this was Hitler's argument that he was going to restore stability to German society and he would get rid of the crime. You can still meet Germans today who were alive during the Third Reich who will say to you, well, Hitler was a very bad person, but there was no crime in my town. Of course, then, you know, it's just a ridiculous thing that they say that, but, you know, there wasn't any crime because all the criminals were picked up and put in in prisons, you know. Uh, But, of course, the greatest crime that the Nazis committed was, was the, well, in my view, was the Holocaust. So, I mean, they were the greatest criminals of all. But they did sweep up criminals, ordinary criminals, in the the Third Reich, and they put them in camps. Um, It's very common to hear other people say that Hitler lost World War II because he didn't listen to his general. Uh How how true is that statement? No, I don't. Well, I mean, I, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make that argument. Um, there's many reasons why Hitler lost that war. 
One factor is that by the time of the Russian campaign, he did not listen to some generals. That's true. He had this idea that he had to conquer Russia. Um, but there were other factors as well. I mean, for example, the Nazis were under Hitler, uh, under Hitler's direction, were committed to killing all Jews in the world, as certainly they were starting with the territories that they controlled. Uh, they gave a lot of resources to this because this was a primary aim to create this racially pure state. Uh, that, was a, that was a mistake because it took away a lot of uh, manpower and resources. They also, when they conquered Eastern Europe, Poland, uh, along with other Eastern European states, and then they went into to Russia, instead of trying to work with the ordinary citizens, they uh, came in and basically were extremely brutal to them. For example, this is the case in Poland. So they didn't try to cooperate with Polish civilians who weren't Jewish. They basically wanted to make them slaves. That's what they said they were going to do. They were going to create these huge um, industrial uh, areas and huge uh, agricultural uh, properties, and they would use the Polish civilians as slaves to, to make the greatest empire that had ever been. And so they alienated a lot of ordinary citizens. That made it difficult for them, I think, to win the war. And um, they underestimated the power of the Russian army under Stalin, totally underestimated. It wasn't just Hitler that did this. He had supporters even in the military who agreed with him on this. So there's lots of factors. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention the other one, which a lot of people don't pay attention to, but it's really important, and that is that the German economy was a mess in World War II. There was not adequate um, planning in the German economy. Hitler, from the very beginning, uh, went into uh, let the German nation go into enormous debt to fund the military and to increase the weaponry. And by 43, 44, there's not a lot of money in the German uh, coffers. And you need to have a lot of money to continue a long war. So this was another factor. They couldn't produce enough weapons. You, you've probably heard that um, the soldiers on the Eastern Front, they didn't even have adequate coats and footwear. There wasn't enough food for them. Many of them starved to death or in the cold weather in, in Russia. It was just horrific. So there were s lots and lots of problems and bad decisions that led to Germany losing the war. Uh, while I was uh, doing research for this episode, I found something very, very interesting. Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Did I say his name? Yeah, the French. Yeah. He said this when the Treaty of Versailles was signed and at the end of World War One, he said, this is not peace. This is truce for 20 years. Turns out he's very true. Ah. Were there a lot of people in Germany or in anywhere back in the end of World War One saw World War Two was coming? Before? No. And that's really interesting. No. There really were not many people that understood that the instability of the 1920s could lead to another war. And even if you looked at Germany... Uh, I mean, when Hitler first became a political activist and joined the Nazi, uh, well, the German Workers' Party, which becomes the Nazi Party, they were considered a complete joke by everybody, including the elite of Germany. Nobody ever thought that they would they would come to power. Uh, it was they, most Germans were shocked when it happened in 1933. So. Um, I don't think people, many people, uh, understood that the conditions after World War One, in fact, were really uh, were rife for were 
how, how would I put this, that there were conditions that were created because of the loss of the war, the economic suffering, the political instability, and um, also, if you look at Hitler, the impact that the war had on him that made it more likely that another war would happen and that Germans would turn to a political movement like Nazism, but very few people saw it. Even when Hitler became leader, they didn't see it. Even European leaders, they should have known better. I mean, even before 1939, you still have leaders thinking that they can't, like Chamberlain, of uh, the Prime Minister of Britain, thinking that they can control Hitler or that, that he's a reasonable statesman. I mean, Time magazine made him Man of the Year in 1938. He was considered one of the greatest European leaders in the world, uh, not just European leaders, greatest leaders in the world because he had brought back economic stability to Germany. He, he was a very resolute leader, he, was, uh, he had enormous support from the German people. And if he had died in 1938, for example, which would have been great, but if, you know, if he had died, he would have been remembered as one, again, one of the greatest leaders ever because nothing had happened yet that would tarnish his reputation. So my point is that really not very many people saw what was coming. Usually there's a segment in this show where I will name famous people of that field to my guest, like my guest's uh, field of study. So last episode, I named famous philosophers to a philosophy professor. And the first episode, I named famous math- mathematician to a math professor. But I must say, I don't know any famous historian. What? Really? Yeah. So I want you to talk uh maybe name one or two famous historian and what they did for uh history oh yes i mean i one of the greatest greatest historians of modern germany is ian kershaw and you uh, can go to any bookstore and find his two volume biography of hitler it's fantastic it's a great read lots and lots of people have read it not just history specialists and he really looks at Hitler's personality, at how he came to power, and then what he did during the buildup, the uh, the buildup of the Nazi movement during the Third Reich, and then during the war. It's beautifully written, and um, uh, he's uh, he's really respected as a historian. Ian Kershaw, he's a British um, man who's been knighted by the Queen, so you call him Sir Ian Kershaw. Um, <laughs> Uh, he, I mean, he's really he's really beloved because he um, uh, he's written so many great books on the Nazi period. He started off as a medieval historian, so it's kind of interesting, and then he became a modern historian. Um, and these books are just fantastic. So he's one person I would definitely recommend. Another person that is I he, is he still around? Yeah, is he's he, still alive. Yeah. Uh, can you give me a historian in history, like? Like in the past, yeah, like in the a past. long time like ago. A, yeah, like 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 Newton in math, you know, like historian from five hundred years ago, that kind of hmm. a historian from the past that made a huge impact in well, made an impact in history. Can you think of one? Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's that's a tough question. There is a German historian named Treitschke, who was very influential in looking at the German past and in identifying um, German, the German identity in the 19th century, Heinrich von Treitschke. He was quite influential uh, as, a, as a historian. Um, but other than that, no, I can't. I, I mean, most of the, the, the major historians that I have read and that I think of are historians from the 20th century. 
that were extremely influential for me. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is because when you study history, um, every century changes in terms of historical knowledge because more documents are found or more research is, is acquired. And then, you know, the great people of the past, like Trechka, become irrelevant because their arguments no longer hold uh, hold water that you know they don't understand uh, the, the extent of of uh, the topic anymore and so you look to other figures so um what do you think is the job of a historian well yeah that's a good question to me the historian should be telling a, a great story the historian should be finding out um, what happened? I, I often think of historians as being like detectives, you know, trying to figure out, piece together what exactly occurred. So, for example, if you're looking at the subject of the Holocaust, there's all sorts of historians that are trying to find out where Jews and other victims were killed because the Nazis often hid the bodies and what, le what led up to the massacre. So, you know, they try to piece together the evidence and sometimes they even use archaeologists, uh, you know, to, f to help find locations and put together um, uh, bones and objects that will show them what occurred. And then they try to talk, do oral history and talk to people in the area that might have witnessed something, and they piece it all together. I, I, I definitely think about that in terms of history. I also think, I know this is going to sound uh, perhaps to, to some of your listeners maybe too demanding, but I think a historian is somebody who spends the time to go into an archive and sit down for days and looks at the documents. Not somebody who just writes a, a history book because they read other history books and they said, well, this is my interpretation now. No, I think you should be like working with the evidence. You need to look at it. If you're working on the Holocaust, you should be looking at the documents that came from Hitler or Heydrich or Himmler directing certain uh, actions or from those people that you know carried out the Holocaust, defining to Berlin what they've done, how many people have died. You need to be you know looking very closely at the research. Yeah, that's what I think. What What's next? What's after that? Let's say you, you did all of that, and then what's next? You mean after if you've done a lot of research? Yeah, you've done a lot of research. You, you sit yeah, through the archive. You, yeah, normally what you do so you collect all the research, then you read it all over. You look for common ideas or themes. You look to see what, um, I, like I, I'm trying to think of an example, but again, if you were looking at something in the Holocaust, and let's say you're looking at a particular deportation of Jews, for example, from an area in Germany, and you read all the documentation, you're trying to find out what day did it occur, what, was our, what, what did Berlin say they wanted to have done and why, where were the victims being sent, how many of them were there, were there children involved, you know, were they just men, were they women, um, why, why was the decision made to deport them, what happened to them, and so on. So you're trying to piece together, you know, what goes on. So you look at the evidence, you begin to put the story together, and then the next stage is that you start writing. You either write an article or a book where you tell um, others about what you've learned, what happened. Yeah. Okay. Do you, do you think there are any merits to discuss counterfactual history, like what-if history? You know, I like it. I mean, I actually enjoy counterfactual history sometimes. I, I think, uh, you know, like what if Hitler had uh, carried on with the Battle of Britain? Would the, uh, 
would the Nazis, would the Germans have won that battle and would Britain have been knocked out of the war and then, you know, would the Nazis have, have essentially won the war? We can't answer that question because, of course, that's not what happened. I do think it's good to ask these what ifs. You have to be careful because we don't know the answer. You mm -hmm. know, you can only use your imagination. We just don't know. Um, but I do think I do think it's worth thinking about that. Yes. Why not? What's your favorite what if scenario? Oh, man. I mean, for me, one of the most significant is in 1923, Hitler was involved in a putsch in Munich. And the Nazis tried to take over power. They didn't succeed, and they were basically stopped the next day. It was on November the 9th, 1923. And the next day, they did this march through the center of Munich, and the police and the army together, the German army, basically fired on this group of marchers. Hitler was in the front row next to Hermann Goering and another uh, man, another member of the Nazi movement. The man on Hitler's left was shot and killed. Hitler was wounded, and Goering was also badly wounded. But there was this um, uh, opportunity at that point. I mean, it really could have happened that Hitler could have died, um, been shot and killed. And he also ran away, even though he was wounded. He almost left Germany, almost tried to flee. But he was convinced by friends to stay in Germany and to give himself to the police. And he ended up, Hitler ended up using this incident because he was brought to trial to get lots of publicity for himself in attacking the German politicians of the day. So it, it, in the end, it helped him. But I always ask myself, like, what would have happened if he died then? I mean... He brought so much suffering, not him alone, but he directed it. He brought so much suffering to the world. I mean, I wish that he had, you know, I wish he had died in 1923. Yeah. So that's the big what if for me. Yeah. How many things will need to go the other way for Germany to have won World War II? Just uh, in general, how many, like, is there a lot of things need to go the other way for Germany to win World War Two, or was it like just this close, like the Allies? Well, that's won. I mean that's a, I mean that's a really good question, and it would be helpful to have a military historian who could give even more perspective on this. But I think that the Nazis did come very close, particularly before the invasion of Russia, to uh, to winning. A, a, to, well, like I said a moment ago. To, for example, knocking out the British, or at Dunkirk, if they'd been able to to uh, kill or um, imprison most of the the uh, the soldiers that were still in France, it would have been devastating for Britain. I think if Britain had been knocked out of the out of the war, the U.S. probably would have made an agreement with Germany, and the Soviets couldn't have fought by themselves. So I I think I I I do think that that uh, they came very close, and there were maybe, you know. I mean, by f certainly by 40, 40, 41, they were in, you know, in really, really strong position. So I don't think that there were many, many instances that prevented them from, from, from doing um, great damage in the war. We're really lucky that that didn't happen. Let's talk about something that is sillier. Okay. I think there are a lot of stuff in the world that are poorly named. The most notable one being our seventh planet from the sun, Uranus. 
Well, but then the 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 German astronomer who came up with the name, who proposed the name, didn't really know how the word would have turned out in English. Another thing that I think that is very poorly named is the term "dark age." Yep. It makes it sounds like it is so grim. It's dark. It's cold. Nothing、yep. good happened. Totally. Very misleading. So, can you just tell me a few things, few great things that happened during the Dark Age? Sure. I mean, I, first of all, I think it's really important to remember that the term actually came out of the Enlightenment. So, you had, you know, at the end of、uh, the 18th century, you had the philosophers in France and other intellectuals in Europe who believed that through their own study and debate had reached a pinnacle of human achievement. And when they looked back at the Middle Ages, which had been Dominated particularly by religious ideas, they said, "Ah, this was the Dark Ages. We are now enlightening the world with knowledge." And the Enlightenment is really important, but to call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages—that's crazy. Well, first of all,、uh, if you look at the、um, the history of the written word at the development of language,、um, the Middle Ages is amazing. In Germany, the invention of the printing press, and then the work, for example, of Martin Luther. In the 1500s, where he translated the Bible into German, and he helped to change the very nature of the German language, he brought together High German and a version of Low German, a sort of colloquial German, what people normally spoke. He put these together and created this beautiful language. I mean, that's just one example of a really remarkable development. But also in terms of art, some of the greatest artists. Came,、uh, you know, in 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 the Middle Ages, and one of them that I love, and I know I'm using only German examples, but maybe your listeners will look this guy up. Is a man named Tilman Riemenschneider. He's got a really funny name. He was a sculptor who did images for、um, altars and made out of wood, and they are sublimely beautiful, like amazing. And if you go to Berlin, and you go to the Bode Museum. All of his artwork is in there, so he's just one example of some of the greatest artists of the Middle Ages who produced beautiful, beautiful art. Or someone like Durer. Some of you, your listeners, will know Durer, Albrecht Durer, great, great、uh, German artist of uh, uh, of the、uh, the 1500s. So, in terms of art, in terms of you know language and literature,、um, this was an extraordinary、um, period, and the history is pretty interesting too. Uh, so you you've been referencing the Dark Age as the Middle Age, so I guess that is、uh, more, I guess like more <laughs> appropriate. Yes, term that's for... the term that historians would use now. Yeah. Okay. The Middle Ages. Um, how is uh how is a third year history class harder than the first year in history class? It's not like first you have to learn German history, then then you got the prerequisite to learn Renaissance history. How is a third year course harder than a first year course? You have to read. Students have to read more. So they'd have to the the texts. Well, first of all, they have to read more pages. Secondly, the texts tend to be more complex, and you're expected in in the seminar to have discussions where you understand the basic、uh, details of what happened in any particular historical event, and you're really looking at the factors that led to the event occurring or to the consequences of that event. So you're thinking in a, you're analyzing in a much more complex way than in first year. Now that's not to say, to be totally honest with you, that you can't have a first year class where you have a really fantastic seminar, and you may be addressing something pretty basic, like the origins of World War One, but you can still have a really great discussion. That happens, 
but by and large, I would say third year, you definitely have to, um, you have to know uh, uh, more in order to do the history properly. You have to know the basics. Um, you have to analyze more, uh, use more complex analysis. And you also, your essays are longer, so you have to show that you've developed skills of writing and um, argumentation. You just quickly, you quickly talked about origin of World War One as a simple topic. How is that a simple topic? Yeah, it's not really. I'm probably not using my words properly. Well, it's not a simple topic, but what you can do is when you're looking at the origins of World War One, you can focus on two or three of the main uh, causes, and then you look at those, and they can provide a lot of evidence for what happened. So, of course, it's you know many factors went into World War One. But it's certainly possible in a first-year class to talk about the competition between Britain and Germany as a primary factor in World War I. They had a naval race before 1914. The German leadership didn't win that race. They were panicked at the idea that they were going to be left behind in Europe. And they made this stupid decision to take this incident of Francis, Francis Ferdinand being killed and use it to with Austria to begin a conflict, it be, to begin a war. So, it, I mean, this is one major factor. So you can look at isolated factors. There's actually about 20 reasons why all the, all the nations went to war. But, there, but, yeah, but some are more important than others, I think. I have a funny question. This is more yeah. like a fun question. It's like uh, when somebody asks me if I can travel back at any time period of history, where would I go? I say, no, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm staying, the, I'm staying present. If I can get to go somewhere, I will go to the future because ah, like this. Like, um, that's pretty interesting. If you have a time machine and you can go back any time, would you go back to any time? Yes, I would. I totally, in fact, I think I was in another life. I came from this era. (laughs) I love German culture so much. I would love to have lived in the 1920s. So during the the so-called Weimar Republic, Weimar era, um, the golden 20s. So I should have said the so-called golden 20s. when Roaring 20s. Roaring 20s when there were these incredible... um, innovations made in the arts, in popular culture, when cinema was developed, when music went through so many marvelous changes, jazz music emerges, women could wear wonderful uh, clothing, uh, you know, all sorts of new dresses, and there was uh, a lot of freedom in in terms of sexuality. Uh, It was just a magnificent time before the Nazis showed up. I wouldn't want to live beyond 1933, but I really think that that period of time from like 1918 to about 1930, I would love to have witnessed some of that, you know. And you think about some of the great writers like Hemingway um, uh, living in Paris and enjoying the 20s in Paris. And, of course, there were other writers that went to Germany and really explored the, the new modernity of the time. I think it was really exciting. I would love to have seen that. So you've been talking about movies in and out. Yeah. And I and you said that you love movies. You I love do. What's the most historically accurate movie? Wow, that's really a good question. Uh I think for me the most accurate film I've ever seen is about the Holocaust and it's called Son of Saul. It's a Hungarian film about the Jews who were working in the special units, they called them Sonderkommando in Auschwitz. And the story is that one of these men finds a boy 
who has uh, survived one of the gassings, but he's near death, and he tries to keep him alive. And then when he dies, he tries to find a place to bury him. And uh, the movie is just incredible. And the director did a lot of research. So you really see the nature of this camp of Auschwitz and what it was like for the prisoners there. That, that movie blew my mind. And it's only a few years old. So it's really worth seeing. It's a Hungarian movie. So it's, it's Hungarian. It's going to have subtitles, but okay. that's okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I saw one of your tweets back in 2011. You were saying you were arranging a musical concert for Trent. What was that all about? Like, oh, right. That was um, when I was uh, the principal of Lady Eaton College. I was the principal of Lady Eaton College once. I brought in musicians to play uh, for students and uh, I brought in, for example, Palestinian Canadian artist named um, John Farah who plays piano but uses computer with piano and brings in Middle Eastern themes. He gave a concert. That was a big hit. And then I also brought in the music students from the University of Toronto and they came and played um, steel drums and then they also brought in percussion instruments and they played in the dining hall. And I was trying as much as I could to introduce more music to Trent students, I mean, I know there's a pretty incredible musical scene in Peterborough um, and that Trent students are really interested in music, but I was also trying to bring in musicians in, into, uh, into Trent. And I also arranged at the, that same year for students to go to the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto because I thought, well, really, you have to, like, you know, uh, experience art and culture in as many ways as you can. Why not? Uh, you know, as as becoming a, an educated person or, you know, just living in this world. And I believe in the importance of culture. So that's what I was trying to do. I was imagining you conducting music and oh, you I playing wish. the music. I would love, I do sing. I, I'm a singer, but, um, and I sing in a, in a choir and I do cabarets here in Peterborough. I do that for fun. Um, but I've never conducted an orchestra, even though I would love to do that. I think that's got to be one of the best experiences ever. Yeah. So this is the end of this episode. If you like this episode, come back next time for another. So thanks very much again, Carolyn, for joining me today. And, My pleasure. And until the time machine is invented, stay curious. <laughs>